So what would you do if you won the lottery? Has anybody ever thought of that? Like, what would you do if you won the lottery? Uh, I remember when I was very young, uh, every once in a while, our family would buy a lottery ticket when, when the jackpot was particularly large, right? My mom would go buy a lottery ticket. Uh, we didn't have a lot growing up. And I remember at least one time when we all just imagined, like, what would we do if we won the lottery? Where would we move? What size house would we get? What size pool would it have, right? Who would we buy houses for? What, what things that we always wanted would we finally have? I remember thinking, wow, if we win this thing, life is going to be so much better for us. Right? And, and even better for those around us, because, of course, we'd share our billions, right? Plenty, plenty to share with other people. I remember wanting it so bad, like going to sleep at night and being like, oh, I really hope we win this. Um, and, and, and the videos of the people who win, like have you ever seen those? Or like Publishers Clearinghouse in the olden days where they show up at somebody's door and they win and they're crying, they're screaming, right? They rejoice, they fall on the ground, Right? Who wouldn't? Right? But that's the last we usually see of those people. Right? What happens after they get their money? What happens after they get their millions or billions? Now, a few years ago, uh, when the Powerball, jack Powerball jackpot was uh, up to $1.5 billion, Time magazine released an article called, Here's How Winning the Lottery Makes You Miserable. And they shared some stories from real winners. Uh, they interviewed a financial consultant who works with a lot of lottery winners, and he said, so many of them wind up unhappy or wind up broke. People have had terrible things happen. People commit suicide. People run through their money. Easy come, easy go. They go through divorce, or, or sometimes people die. And here are just a couple stories from that article. Uh, Jack Whitaker, he was already a millionaire when he won $315 million in a lottery uh, in West Virginia. He was 55 years old, and he says he went broke about four years later. He lost a daughter, lost a granddaughter to drug overdoses, which he blamed on the curse of the Powerball win. He says, my granddaughter is dead because of the money. You know, my wife had said she wished that she had torn the ticket up. Well, I wish that we had torn the ticket up, too. He was also robbed for $545,000 sitting in his car while at a strip club eight months after winning the lottery. He said, I just don't like Jack Whitaker. I don't like the hard heart I've got. I don't like what I've become. Another winner, Sandra Hayes, she won the Missouri Lottery in 2006, and she split $224 million uh, with her coworkers. And she told the Associated Press that she's had a really hard time adapting to this new life, right? Which it changed after she saw how her closest family and friends started to behave. She says, I had to endure the greed and the need that people have, trying to get you to release your money to them, she said. That caused a lot of emotional pain. These are people who you've loved deep down and they're turning into vampires trying to suck the life out of you. It's been said time and time again, right? Money can't buy happiness. And then some respond, well, it certainly helps, right? But does it? 
right? We can't deny that money does relieve the pressure. It certainly does. Money itself can be a blessing. Money itself isn't bad. It can make a huge difference for the better in our lives and in the lives of others. But loving money or, or elevating money or any other material stockpile to a place of utmost importance in our lives, it will ruin our lives. Jesus talked a lot about money, especially in the book of Luke, which is where we are today. 11 out of 39 of Jesus' parables were about money and what we should do with money. And as we're in this second half of Luke and Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem, he's on his way to the cross. He's surrounded by a crowd, as he was so often, right? A crowd of thousands of people. A few verses before our passage, it says they were trampling on one another. And it's here where Jesus decides to start to speak to his disciples, or he decides to start to teach his disciples. And so just picture a mixed crowd here as we get into this. It's not a crowd of only disciples, right? There are people there who want to learn about Jesus. There are people who are skeptical about Jesus. There are people there who don't even like Jesus. And he's about to address his disciples. And purposefully, right, with, with an earshot of the crowd. And that's, that's a lot of what we do on Sundays, right? We have a mixed group here on Sundays, right? But we are teaching truth from Scripture that's intended for the followers of Jesus to show them what it looks like to follow him. At the same time, and we'll see how this even plays out in our passage, Scripture has a way of revealing who Jesus is so that if you haven't yet put your trust in him, you get an opportunity to do so with the knowledge of who he is and why he came. So knowing how much Jesus spoke on money and, and using money justly, it's no surprise that this man from the crowd calls out to Jesus with this money-related request or this money-related demand, right? That's going to spark this profound teaching on how we should view money, and so our roadmap through this passage for today, just so you can know the pegs that we're going to hang everything on, uh, there's going to be a demand, right? There's going to be a denial, and then there's going to be a demonstration, right? A demand, a denial, and a demonstration. And so let's look out for those. Uh, let's check out the demand this man has uh, from the crowd. He calls out and says in Luke 12, 13, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But if Jesus is concentrated so much on teaching about money, right, and, and being righteous with our money, then it makes sense why this man might call out from the crowd. He likely wants his brother to act justly, right? He likely wants Jesus to tell his brother not to withhold his rightful share of the inheritance. And in that day, they didn't have things like we have like probate court, right, where folks settled disputes like that, they'd actually go to their local rabbis. And so here he is calling Jesus rabbi, teacher, and he's asking him to tell his brother to do what's right. But Jesus wasn't like an official rabbi, right, with all the local authorities of the rabbis from the synagogues in town. He's coming to Jesus, and he's asking him to use his influence, right? He's asking him to use his influence to sway his brother to do what's right. Right? Jesus kind of has right now this following that sees him as, as really having, you know, the, the market cornered on morality, right? He's, he's teaching all of these things, and, and this guy's like, I want you to tell my brother to do this. 
And I mean, he might very well be asking for justice, right? That inheritance might be rightfully his. But isn't this the way that, that we so often come to Jesus, asking him to fix other people, right? To deal with their issues as they affect us. In verse 11, Jesus is teaching his disciples, telling them, this is before our passage today, he's telling them that they're going to encounter some really difficult times of persecution for following him. He's telling them, when they bring you before the synagogues, don't worry how you're going to defend yourself. And then this guy yells out, teacher, tell my brother to share the inheritance. Right? That's a little tone deaf, right, as, as, as to what's going on in that situation. Like, if this is what you're thinking in that moment with Jesus, the Son of God, in front of you, what does it say about your heart? And have you ever been around a bitter person who hasn't dealt in a healthy way with their hurts? And it's like, no matter what subject you're talking about, they artfully pave roads back to the thing that they just can't let go. Right? Could have been years ago. Could have been decades ago. Or better yet, have you ever been that person? Jesus deals with this man, right? And like Jesus, deal with this man, right? Deal with this person who won't do what I want them to do. And then I'll have peace, right? If Jesus just deals with my problems, then I'll have peace. And in the setting that Luke gives us, this guy emerges like that, right? Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance. Fix him. Fix him so I can get my money and my property and I can live happily the rest of my life. And Jesus... Jesus doesn't get drawn into people's attempts at triangulation, right? He deals with the speaker head on. He, he just outright denies his request, right? And so, and so that's the demand, right? This man makes this demand of Jesus that he would tell his brother to do what's right. And Jesus denies it. So let's look at that denial, his response in verse 14. Friend, he said to him, who appointed me a judge or arbitrator over you? Right? This man has local authorities to deal with this problem. Why is he coming to Jesus? Who appointed me judge and arbitrator? The truth remains for us that, that no request is too small to bring to God. Right? Jesus welcomes all of our prayer requests. But at the same time, in this particular context, this request minimizes what Jesus came to do. He didn't come to settle family squabbles, right? It's, it's not that he doesn't have the wisdom or even the authority to command whatever he pleases, right? We know that he is ultimately going to be the judge of the living and the dead, but he's not a probate court magistrate, right? He's the enfleshed God of the universe. And this man gets the opportunity to sit in front of him, and he wants him to divide up property, it's not that the work is too small for Jesus as much as it is that Jesus is too small for this man. Right? It's not that the work is too small for Jesus. It's that this man is seeing Jesus as very small. His view of Jesus and his own self-awareness of the need that he has before him are lacking. So Jesus says, no, I'm not going to do that. 
You can deal with that any day of the week with the proper authorities. And then he gives this warning to the whole crowd that addresses the heart of this one man. He then told them, verse 15, watch out and be on guard against all greed because one's life is not in the abundance of his possessions. Be on guard against all greed because one's life is not in the abundance of his possessions. Jesus tells the crowd to be on guard against all greed, right? Even greed for things that you might feel you're owed, right? Or maybe that you're justly owed. Be on guard against all greed. This consuming desire for money and possessions will consume our very lives. Jesus says that's not where life is. That's not what makes up a life. That's not how you measure a life. Material wealth can't hold the weight of life. It's temporary. It's unpredictable. It's unstable. You know, I think of a shelf uh, that I installed a month or so ago in our laundry room. And for the life of me, I could not find a stud. And in my impatience, I made a bad choice and chose to use some drywall anchors instead to hold the shelf to the wall. And you can probably see where this is going. I'm, I'm not a handyman by any means. Uh, and well, once we put stuff on the shelf, it was pretty clear that the drywall anchors were not going to be enough to cut it. Uh, and now we have this shelf that's kind of hanging out of the wall, right, above our washer and dryer. Uh, and then it's eventually going to have to be remounted, right, remounted correctly if we wanted to hold anything. Right? We put a lot of the really heavy stuff of life on the fragile and volatile shelf of material wealth whether that's money, possessions, right? We take things like security and safety and we put it on the shelf, right? A hoard of money will protect us if anything happens. We take things like meaning and significance and we put it on the shelf. If I have a lot of money or if I have the right stuff or the right home, the right car, the status that I want to have, my life will have purpose, Right? We put that on the shelf. Even the feeling of exhilaration, right? That dopamine hit when you get a big check, right? Or make a big sale or, or no matter how big the check, when you go and buy something that you really, really want, but you really, really don't need, right? We put that on the shelf. Freedom, right? We put that on the shelf. I can go where I want, when I want, do what I want. Money gives me options, I will take our value before others, right? Prosperity demands a level of respect. We put that on the shelf of money. And probably the heaviest thing of all, we put our joy on there. Money will make me happy, right? We've seen that that's actually not true, right? My possessions will make me happy. The things that I have can bring me comfort and joy, and often we put all these really heavy things on this unstable platform. And just like my poorly installed laundry room shelf, it's only a matter of time before it all crashes to the ground. In 2008, when the housing market crashed to the ground and what we call it the Great Recession followed, the suicide rate went dramatically up. And when the dust settled, one article in Forbes said that researchers from the University of Oxford compared suicide data from before 2007, 
with the years of the crisis, and they found more than 10,000 economic suicides associated with that recession across the U.S., Canada, and Europe. Another article said that those with the highest risk of suicide were those with the most to lose, right? Those with the furthest to fall. And you might even remember billionaires and millionaires one after another during that time, just seeing that in the news, I do, ending their lives because they hadn't even lost all of their fortune, but just a good portion of it, right? This man comes to Jesus and he says, I want my money, I want my land, I want my things, And Jesus tells him, be on guard against all greed. One's life isn't in the abundance of possessions. I mean, I might be wrong, but I'm guessing we don't have any billionaires here today. It's possible. But what if you don't have a lot? Right? What if you don't have a lot of money? Right? What if you don't have a lot of stuff? This is where Jesus' teaching is actually universal because he's not saying be on guard against being wealthy and prosperous. He's not saying be on guard against earning lots of money or having lots of money. He's saying be on guard against greed. And you can have that whether you have a lot or whether you have a little, right? This desire for things as a means for life. Right? And, and that can happen on a small scale or a big scale. It can be a grudge that you're holding against somebody who never paid you back. Right? It could be workaholism right? at the expense of your relationships. It can be avarice and the need to stockpile possessions and money just for security and hanging onto it tightly. Right? Greed can span the spectrum from folks who are so tight with their money that they refuse to spend a dime to folks who spend everything. Greed is self-focused. Across economic status, um, it's, it's, it's the same, right? We share it as humans. And it's especially evident in our lives when we are unwilling to give. That's really the litmus test. Do I give? And, and to what proportion, right? Not how much, not how much do I give, but to what proportion, Like, is giving a lived value of mine? That's a good way to test to see if this word is for you. Jesus denies this man's demand, and in that denial, he gives a warning to all. He says, watch out for this, because one's life doesn't consist in the abundance of possessions. So we've looked at the demand, right? We've looked at Jesus' denial, and now Jesus is going to demonstrate this principle with a parable, this story that's embedded with actionable truth. He says in verse 16, Then he told them a parable. Jesus said, A rich man's land was very productive. He thought to himself, What should I do since I don't have anywhere to store my crops? I will do this, he said. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones and store all my grain and my goods there. And I'll say to myself, you have many goods stored up for many years. Take it easy. Eat, drink, and enjoy yourself. But God said to him, you fool. This very night your life is demanded of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? That's how it is with the one who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. So let's look at this story. If we read the part before God calls him a fool, right? If we just stopped there, 
We might think this is a good story about a guy who was wise with his wealth, right? He worked hard. His land produced lots of grain. He was wealthy. He was ready to retire early. Who doesn't want that? Right? He was a resourceful guy. He was faced with a problem, right? Needed more room, and he solved it. Build bigger barns. Kick back, right? Enjoy the fruit of your labor as you live out the rest of your life. That sounds like a dream, right? There's no hint in this story that he came by any of this in a dishonest way. He's not corrupt. He's just hashtag blessed, right? Wouldn't we all like to get there at some point? I honestly believe that if you shared this story with most people in our culture, they'd see nothing wrong with it at all, right? The stuff is rightfully his. He can do whatever he wants with it. And that makes sense if you believe that the stuff is all there is, right? If you believe that this is all there is. And that's how the rich farmer lived his life, right? He hasn't taken into account anything beyond this life, right? Where his possessions will have no use. I mentioned earlier that money is fragile, but, but we're fragile too, right? We're fragile too. In all his planning and, and in all his resourcefulness, he failed to recognize his own fragility. And instead of losing all his wealth, something that a lot of people fear, he lost his very self. And when he dies, his work is for nothing. And the haunting question is, and these things you have prepared Whose will they be? Right? This is a hard word, but when you're gone, when I'm gone, a lot of our stuff is going in a dumpster. Do you know that? Have you thought of that? A lot of your things, as precious as they might be, and even if you say you don't want it to go in a dumpster, you have no control. It probably will eventually end up in a dumpster. Or it will be picked over in an estate sale and then thrown in a different dumpster. What would it look like if we started thinking about that day and then we reverse engineered how we want to manage the wealth that God has given us? What's missing from this man's story? Why is God calling him a fool? I mean, it's a big deal if, if God calls you a fool, right? There are two glaring absences in his life, and the first is God, right? God only shows up in this story when he dies, when his life is required of him. Back in verse 16, we're told that this man's land was very productive. And in the Bible and, and in life, right, a lot of the times fruitful land, it isn't promised, right? There's soil variation. There's damaging winds, disease, animals, insects, a, a host of opposition to growth and productivity. And our control over all these things is limited. So who do we think when the land produces abundantly, right? God. Different stories where the land is producing abundantly in the Bible. God is the one who's attributed with the growth, and beyond that, Christians acknowledge that all things belong to him. The very land that we're using to yield the crops, that's his. He lets us use it. He blesses it. Therefore, what the land yields is also his. He lets us enjoy it. 
But in this story, there's no mention of God's provision. There's no acknowledgement of God's sovereignty. There's no grateful stewardship of what he has given. Right? In fact, if you look at the way the rich farmer talks about the stuff he has in verse 18, he says, my barns, my crops, my grains, my goods. He uses I six times and my five times in just this short little paragraph. And the only time he uses the second person, you, he's talking to himself. You have many goods stored up for many years. Take it easy. Eat, drink, enjoy yourself. How kind of yourself to give yourself permission to take it easy. Right? This leads to a second glaring absence. God is absent, but also where are the people in this man's life? Right? The only time he uses the second person, again, to talk to himself. We see no relationships. We don't see even a wife and children. We see no family, no friends, no community. And you have to wonder why. Right? Perhaps it's easiest to keep all, yourself, all your stuff to yourself if you keep to yourself. Right? There's, there's an absence of others in this passage. And as we look at it, isn't it amazing how God's first and second commandment surface throughout his word? Love God and love your neighbor. And this man isn't doing either with his wealth. If he did, he might compromise the life that he's dreamed up for himself, right? This life of taking it easy to eat and drink and be merry. And he literally says that eat, drink, be merry the beginning of a famous quote that ends with, for tomorrow we die. Right? Eat, drink, be merry, for tomorrow we die. And that was a famous quote back then too. But he leaves that part off, the tomorrow we die part. He thinks he's going to live a long life, but he doesn't. His life ends and his barns probably get picked over by the townspeople. And Jesus says that's how it is with the one who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Wealth toward self is poverty before God. Wealth toward self is poverty before God. And that's a quote from somebody named Daryl Bach, not me. But it's a good one, right? Wealth isn't bad in and of itself, right? And in the Bible, it doesn't say that it's bad. It's wealth that's toward self. That's poverty before God. It's not wrong to save. It's not wrong to have a fruitful inheritance for your family to steward even for generations. It's not sinful to spend money on enjoyment. There are places in the Bible that talk about each one of these things in a positive light. Right? In my Lent devotional, Sinclair Ferguson says, uh, the rich man had made himself God and treated his God richly. The rich man had made himself God and treated himself richly. And that's it in a nutshell. Right? Greed, covetousness is what the Bible calls idolatry. Right? Replacing the eternal true God with something that's temporary and false. Money, Yes, but in the end, ourselves, I, me, mine. Let's continue to keep it on our minds that Jesus, as he's telling this story, he's only weeks away from his own life being demanded of him, right? From the day when he's going to die naked on a cross, 
The Apostle Paul says to the church in 2 Corinthians 8-9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. Heaven emptied its storehouses when God took on human flesh and dwelled among us. There are times when Jesus didn't even have a place to lay his head. Roman soldiers divided his only possessions at the foot of the cross, his clothes. The treasure of heaven was nailed to the cross by greedy people and for greedy people. He died for our sin. And he was raised from the grave. And Ephesians, uh, in Ephesians 1, the Apostle Paul says, Because of that, God the Father has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavens in Christ. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace that he richly poured out on us with all wisdom and understanding. God's riches are poured out on the believers of Christ. The silos of heaven have burst, right? And and the treasure of heaven is available to anyone who trusts in Jesus. And we can't talk about living generously if we don't start with the generosity of God. Right? That's just legalistic generosity. The first step in being, toward, being rich toward God is availing yourself of the riches that he has for you. Right? The first step in laying up treasure in heaven is to avail yourself of Jesus, the treasure of heaven. Right? Come empty and let him fill you. We don't give to impress God or for him to love us. We give because he's given all to us as recipients. Believers in Jesus, we operate from an abundance mindset because we know we'll never lose our greatest treasure. So don't let the scarcity mentality creep in. The Lord is your shepherd, you shall not want. Another translation says, the Lord is your shepherd, is my shepherd, I have what I need. Let God set you free. May God set me free to to live a countercultural life in stark contrast to the rich fool in Jesus' story. So how can we be rich toward God? How can we move from investing in a landfill to investing in eternity? Give. The only way is to give. So where should we give? right? Give to eternal things. You, put, you heard it in the, in the kids' sermon. Give to eternal things. What's going to outlast the earth? What's going to outlast our possessions? People. People last forever. That's where Jesus chose to give everything, right? We are called as God's people to love God and to love our neighbors as ourselves. And we can't do that if our fists are clenched around our money and our possessions, right? Money we spend on ourselves, it doesn't come with us. But when we use our money to bless others, we can build a legacy that goes into eternity, right? Here, here are just some places where you know you will never waste your money. Hosting people in your home, 
right? Hospitality is all over the Bible. Sharing a meal with someone, opening yourself or, or your home, or even if you don't have a home, no matter what your home looks like, it could be small, you know, getting past even your own insecurities and bringing people into your space, right? Or allowing people to invite you into that space and just contributing to hospitality. Or if you are choosing a home or you have the, um, the resources and the blessing to be able to buy a home for yourself, think about how can I buy a home that would bless my community, right? Just it's more of a heart thing, right? Helping those in need. You'll never waste your money when you help those in need. You'll never waste your money when you're feeding the hungry. Jesus says that he will say to us, you fed me right? Clothing the unclothed. There are innumerable opportunities to do this, right? You don't waste a dime doing this. Planning a legacy for your children, if you have them, right? Or your children's children. Training them how to wisely and generously steward that, whether it's a business or an inheritance, right? Sometimes we think that that's selfish, but it's not. This man didn't have any children. He didn't have anybody that he was leaving any of this to. He wasn't investing in anybody. But why would we withhold all that from our own family? And of course, giving to spread the gospel to the ends of the earth and all the little pockets in between. Right? You will never waste your money giving to the mission of God. Right? Think about, has a missionary come to you? Maybe not. Has a missionary come to you and asked for support? Like consider truly and significantly supporting them. Right? We meet in this building and, and we have the things that you see here on Sunday gatherings because people have said yes to supporting the mission of God with their finances. And, and many of you here, but most people as a new church, most people, they're all over the country. There are people that I've shared with what we're doing here and they're excited and they want to give toward what we're doing here. So everything that you see here, it's given by believers across the country from any state you can imagine all over the country. I can tell you this from experience, though. If you want to have a giving life, it's a matter of the heart, right? These are just ideas. But, but you, with your own God-wired creativity and your own spheres of influence, you're going to do a much better job than I would about where you might specifically use your money. I'm not here to tell you where to give your money, but I can tell you that if you don't plan for it, it likely won't happen. Right? Pray and let God take a scalpel to your budget. Right? This is a really touchy subject, money. Right? And that's why I think Jesus hits it right head on like that. I've intentionally, even in this sermon, steered clear of a lot of cliches and, and common ways that I've heard this preached. But in the end, Jesus didn't shy away from talking about money. And so if I'm going to preach his word, I can't either. Right? right? We have to deal with it. You and I have to deal with it. And I'm speaking to, when I say this, this whole sermon, I'm speaking to folks who would call themselves followers of Christ, right? And if that's not you, then the only invitation that I have for you is to receive, right? To receive him, to receive the treasure of heaven. A 19th century preacher, Charles Spurgeon, he once wrote, one way to know that Jesus Christ is precious to you 
is that nothing else is. Right? Nothing, everything else is up for grabs. Jesus' words to us, watch out and be on guard against all greed because one's life is not in the abundance of his possessions.